Waiting. It isn't exactly our favorite pastime. And if we're honest with ourselves, we'd admit it's not something we do well. But it's in waiting that we prepare with great anticipation and are being strategically prepared by the one shaping our destiny. Today on Bloom, we'll discuss the life of Joseph and how life's unexpected setbacks are setting the stage for a purpose-filled comeback. I'm your host, Jen Robinson, for April 1st, 2022. Welcome to Bloom. This is a podcast designed to inspire, encourage, and grow women in their relationship with each other and the Lord. If you're tuning in for the first time, Bloom drops a new podcast on the first Friday of each month. The best way to stay up to date with what's happening and to be a part of this growing community is by hitting the subscribe button either on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Also, if you've been a faithful listener to Bloom, I want to say thank you. If this has been a tool to help you grow, I would love for you to share the content with a friend so we can continue to grow together. We're beginning a new series this month called Waiting on the Wonder, Lessons in the Life of Joseph. Now, along with the story of Joshua, the story of Joseph is one of my favorite stories in the biblical canon. It's this kind of rags to riches story with powerful lessons about waiting on the Lord and how he uses what would appear to be a devastating setback as a divine setup for his glory. Now, before we dive into the lesson in Joseph's life that I want to focus on today, I want to first discuss the title, Waiting on the Wonder. You know, after pitching several title ideas, I landed on this one, even though it may seem like a less obvious choice. I was originally thinking of something like, Why the Wait? or Purpose in Waiting. Good titles, safe titles, understandable titles. But the more I kept studying this story, the word wonder kept coming to mind. Now, most of us are familiar with the word waiting, waiting on the results, waiting in line, waiting for the right opportunity. Doctor's offices have designated rooms for waiting. So you might feel like you have a good grasp on the concept of waiting. But sometimes I find that my definition of something isn't accurate to what it really means or I'm not fully aware of its intended meaning. So we're going to start with a little bit of um, some definitions because I want to be sure we're on the same page. So to begin, we're going to start with the word waiting. And the word waiting means the action of staying where one is or delaying action until a particular time or until something else happens. Now, I'd love for you to just mentally highlight the part of the last phrase that will be really important during this series. Delaying action until a particular time. This is going to be a critical concept as we dig into the life of Joseph. Now let's put a pin in that thought and now we're going to take a look at the other main word in the title, my new favorite word, which is wonder. Now wonder can be used as a verb or a noun. It's most often used in the form of a verb and it means to desire or be curious to know something. So for instance, we could say, I wonder where my keys are or I wonder when God will answer that prayer I've been praying about for years. 
But for this series, we are using wonder as a noun. And when it's used as a noun, the word wonder takes on a whole new meaning. And it means a feeling of surprise mingled with admiration caused by something beautiful, unexpected, unfamiliar, or inexplicable. I just love everything about this description. When I read it, it made me wonder why I don't use the word wonder more often. (laughs) I mean, what a great word. And as we unfold these lessons in Joseph's life, we'll see more of how these two definitions of waiting and wonder fit the story so well, and also how they reflect our own seasons of waiting in life. So the story of Joseph is the concluding story in the book of Genesis, and it begins in chapter 37. So I'd love for you, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis 37, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So kind of stepping back a little bit in um, some more context of this story, just like Isaac and Rebecca had their favorites with their sons, Jacob and his brother Esau, We see the repeated pattern of now Jacob, whose name is also Israel, playing favorites with Joseph, who happens to be his 11th son. He had 12 in all. And we read that the reason Joseph was highly favored by Jacob was because yet another favorite of Jacob's, his wife, Rachel, who is the mother of Joseph. Now, if you want a little bit more history on that portion, you can read the whole story in Genesis 29 of how Jacob loved Rachel more than her sister Leah. But we see in these beginning verses that because Jacob favored Joseph, his brothers were jealous. And they kind of had a reason to be. You know, not long in the story, we learn that Joseph receives this gift from Jacob, this colorful coat. And this isn't just, you know, any coat off the rack at Burlington. It's a tunic that was traditionally reserved for the oldest son. But most importantly, it was a symbol of favor. 
Now, as if that wasn't enough to make Joseph's brother's blood boil, Joseph has two dreams, both with similar themes that in essence were saying that there was a prophetic message that one day Joseph's brother's mother and father would all bow down to him. We can see in his second dream that this is outlined clearly. The sun represents Jacob, the moon represents his mother, and the 11 stars represent Joseph's brothers. So Joseph, super excited and perhaps a little proud of his dreams, decides to share them with his family. Probably not the wisest choice. I mean, you can imagine how that conversation went over during family dinner. You know, could you please pass the figs? And oh yeah, by the way, one day I'm going to rule over you. I mean, come on, there really isn't a solid segue to announce to your family that they're going to bow down to you one day. Um, So we're going to see how this continues to play out. We're going to keep on reading and go ahead and begin in verse 12. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to them, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. So Joseph's jealous brothers decide that if they want to shut this dreamer up for good and make certain that these prophesied events will never come to pass, they were going to have to kill him. Nice guys, huh? But you know, God isn't going to allow that kind of foolishness mess up his plans. So next we're going to see how God not only provides a way for Joseph's life to be spared, but ultimately sets his divine plan into motion. So we're going to pick back up in verse 21. When Reuben heard this, Reuben is the oldest brother, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. And just for a little bit of context, this pit that Joseph found himself in um, that was empty, as scripture says, was a cistern, which is a holding place for water. And a lot of times these cisterns would erode over time and it would cause them to crack and eventually it would result in them drying up. And here is Joseph stuck in this empty cistern that he, his spiteful brothers threw him in. Now, one thing I always wonder in these kinds of circumstances in the Bible is what is that person feeling in that very moment? You know, I can 
only imagine Joseph is feeling betrayed, angry, maybe afraid of what is going to happen to him. We can only speculate. But this section of Joseph's story may not get a great deal of Sunday sermon spotlight, but it's where I want us to focus our attention on today because I think there's a critical lesson here. But first, I want to back up a little bit. So we read that before Joseph is thrown into this pit or this cistern, his brothers remove his coat. Now, we'll read later that they end up using the coat as a prop to convince Jacob that Joseph was attacked by a wild animal. But this action is very significant in our own waiting experiences and is our first lesson from Joseph. When God is preparing us for the great purpose he has for us, he will oftentimes allow us to be stripped of the thing or things that matter most to us. Joseph was stripped of his garments. And as we already established, this coat represented Jacob's favor toward Joseph. It was so much more than just a coat. Joseph highly valued this gift from his father. Now, I would argue that this special coat also represented a sense of security, like a covering, because of the favor that Joseph received from Jacob. You know, being the favored is a pretty comfortable position to be in. But once Joseph's brothers removed his coat, we realize that Jacob's favor, what he perhaps valued the most, wasn't going to rescue Joseph from his brother's jealous actions. Joseph couldn't depend on that coat to prevent him from what was going to happen to him. And that's the thing about being stripped of what we value most. When the one thing we leaned so heavily on and clung so tightly to is suddenly gone, it enables us to rethink our dependency. Like a vine dresser to his vine, it's in the journey of waiting, God will often bring about a pruning season where we experience being stripped of the things that matter most to us, whether that is our career, our positions, our reputation, a relationship, or even just our sense of personal comfort and security. When God is moving us in the direction toward our destiny, he will allow the things we hold on to to be removed in order for us to deepen our dependency on him. You know, as I was preparing for this podcast, I, I sat at my dining table. I was looking out the window at my neighbor across the street who was working in his yard, and he was dethatching his yard. Now, when you dethatch your yard, you use this tool that looks kind of like a rake, but picture like a really savage looking rake. And you basically look like you're just hacking away at your lawn with this rake. And you kind of use it in the same motion as you would a rake, um, but you'll begin to see what looks like these fine strands of yarn pull up from the grass. And being someone who you know can only keep plastic plants alive, I had to consult an expert on the purpose of this process. So I asked my husband, self-made grass master, to explain dethatching to me. So I asked Jesse, what is the purpose of dethatching? And he explained, if you want a greener lawn, you have to remove the thatch, 
which I learned that the thatch is a layer of dead grass and debris found at the bottom level of the grass. Notice it's not the easy to spot surface level debris. But what I couldn't understand was the concept of how a process that seems so abrasive could create a positive result to the grass. So Jesse said that even though it looks harmful, when thatch is removed, it allows for the seed to have better contact with the soil. With better soil contact, the grass will have optimal growth. The funny thing about thatching is that you don't even notice it until it's removed, but it has to be removed in order for growth. So in other words, if we're going to grow in our dependency on God, he's going to have to remove the thatch. Now after Joseph was stripped of his colorful coat, he was thrown into this empty pit. He was all alone, just him and his thoughts. Now, we don't know for sure how long Joseph was waiting in this pit. It didn't seem like it was very long if we read the text, but I'd imagine during that time, sitting in the pit, a few thoughts ran through his head, wondering what will happen next, wondering how could his own brothers do such an evil thing to him. Considering these recent dreams he had, I imagine Joseph wondering how this unexpected setback will affect God's divine destiny for him. You know, how did this fit within the scope of his dreams? When we encounter our own unexpected pits in life, we might be tempted to wonder the same kinds of things. We wonder how, you know, what good can come of this? How will the seeds of God's plans for my life ever come to fruition if I'm stuck in this pit of waiting? While being stripped of the things that we value most enables us to rethink our dependency, being positioned alone in the pit enables God to direct our destiny. There is divine purpose in the pit, friend. Whether it's a moment or it's a season, the pit produces a deep trust in God's plan. It feels like a hopeless situation. It's a situation where you feel like you have zero control of the wait time. We tend to feel isolated in the pit. We're commonly misunderstood in the pit. We sometimes experience ridicule in the pit. We might be tempted to feel sorry for ourselves in the pit. You know, pity, party of one. Spiritual warfare in the pit. Injustice in the pit. We may try to see what high-level contacts we have that can help get us out of the pit. You know, I came across this story by Warren Berkeley. He adapted the piece from its original version written by Kenneth D. Filkins. And it goes like this. A man fell into a pit and couldn't get himself out. A subjective person came along, looked down to the man and said, I feel for you down there. An objective person came along and said, it's logical that someone would fall down there. A Christian scientist came along and said, you only think you are in a pit. A Pharisee said, only bad people fall into pits. A mathematician calculated the dimensions of the pit. 
A news reporter wanted the exclusive story about the man falling into the pit. A realist said, yes, that's a pit. A geologist told him he should study the rock strata in the pit. An evolutionist said, you are a rejected mutant destined to be removed from the evolutionary cycle. In other words, you are going to die in that pit so that you cannot produce any pit-falling offspring. The county inspector asked if the man had a permit to dig the pit. A professor gave him a lecture on the elementary principles of the pit. An evasive person came along and avoided the subject of the pit altogether. A self-pitying person said, You haven't seen anything until you've seen the pit I fell into. A charismatic said, Just confess that you're not in the pit. An optimist said, Things could be worse. A pessimist said, Things will get worse. Jesus, seeing the man in the pit, said to him, Take my hand, trust me, and I'll get you out of the pit. Trust me. The pit is such the place for us to trust the only one able to get us out of the pit. But now the thing about the pit is that once we're in the pit, our main objective is getting out of the pit. You know, nobody willingly wants to be in the pit. But we have to stop looking at the pit as the problem. The pit is not the problem. Instead, pursue God harder. Trust him deeper when you are in the pit. By trying to get out of the pit, you may be prematurely removing yourself from the very situation that God is purposefully using to bring you into what he has divinely prepared for you. The very thing you are desiring to remove yourself from is exactly what God has placed you in to move you forward to the next level. The pit enables God to direct your destiny. What might look to you as a devastating setback can really be God's divine setup in disguise. We can even consider Jesus' death. The tomb probably felt similar to the pit, but it was necessary for Jesus to enter what seemed like the biggest setback, death, in order for God to showcase the greatest setup of all time, eternal life through him. As we continue in this series about Joseph, we'll discover that the pit wasn't the end. The pit was just Joseph's waiting room to the school of perseverance. He would be rescued out of the pit, but only to find himself positioned into what appears to be another setback. When we're waiting on the wonder, being stripped of what we value most and placed in the pit, we're waiting on delayed action until God's particular time to turn into his wonder anticipating something beautiful, unexpected, or inexplicable to happen. I want to leave you with these words of encouragement by Elizabeth Elliot. She said, Waiting on God requires the willingness to bear uncertainty, to carry within oneself the unanswered question, lifting the heart to God about it whenever it intrudes upon one's thoughts. I can say this, while the waiting is so painful sometimes, the wonder is going to be nothing short of astonishing.
Remember, if we wait expectantly for things we have never seen, then we hope with true perseverance and eager anticipation. I would love for you to join me back next month. In the meantime, keep growing and God bless. Thank you.